When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for listening to the latest Football Digest podcast available on all podcast platforms. Subscribe now through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Acast or wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss a single episode. Hello and welcome to the Football Digest podcast. I'm your host, Connor Bromley, and I'm joined today by Ned Keating. And Ned, we've got an action-packed show today. So much to talk about. We've got Premier League football to talk about, but we've also got plenty of transfers to talk about as well. But we'll start with the Premier League and we'll start at St. James's Park on Saturday evening. Man City looked potentially like they were going to drop more points. 2-1 down at one stage where Kevin De Bruyne came on for Man City and changed the game, scored a wonderful goal and got himself a wonderful assist uh, to see Manchester City win 3-2. We've got to start with Kevin De Bruyne, haven't we? You know how much of a game changer is it for Man City that he's back and firing now? We spoke about it on last week's show about the fact that it felt like Kevin De Bruyne returned with turbocharged Manchester City's title challenge, and well, we saw it really at, at the weekend. As you said, there changed the game for them, won the game for them um, at Newcastle um, to prevent them from dropping more points. Um, and this is from a man who kind of you know we don't call it a cameo appearance, but he came off the substitutes bench, didn't he, to do it. So when he can start his games fully and, and when he is able to play, you know, the full 90 minutes again for Manchester City, if he can change the games like he did against Newcastle off the bench, imagine what he can do. And we know what he can do. We don't have to imagine what he can do. We know exactly what he can do when he starts matches. Um, and we knew his return to Manchester City would be a huge, huge plus for them uh, in this title hunt, this title challenge. Um, and, it is, and, it's, and it's not just the return of such a brilliant player. Um, I think I've said previously on this show this season that when you look at Manchester City's struggles at times and, and that kind of period, November, December time, where they they, they were drawing matches um, and, and in games where they have lost this season as well, you have to remember that midfield. You know, they were without Kevin De Bruyne, of course they were, but they were also without Ukai Gundogan. And it's not just so much two brilliant players that they were without, but two leaders, two real leaders in that squad. Gundogan last season was the captain. De Bruyne was his vice-captain and De Bruyne is now the captain of that Manchester City side. Of course, we all forgot that, that he was the captain of the team and was given the armband in the summer because well, he's been out injured since August and you've seen Kyle Walker wearing the armband in most matches for Man City this year. But of course, he is the captain. He is the leader. So it's not just so much the player that Manchester City have missed, but it's also Kevin De Bruyne, the personality, the leader, the character in that dressing room that they missed, along with Ilkay Gundogan. Now he's going to be back in there at a stage in the season where we all know that, you know, kind of once it gets past Christmas, there's a, there's a switch that kind of flicks in Man City. We saw it last year where they made up that ground at Arsenal and caught them up. And, you know, we'd say that that probably, the funny thing is, is that by and large last year, we would say that we've seen Manchester City teams play better and hit better form and look better. They won the, the treble last year. And we still knew that they would do that because after January, uh, sorry, after Christmas into January, they just find another gear, find another level. And we kind of weren't surprised that they overtook Arsenal. And likewise, again, this year, we won't be surprised if they go on uh, and win. You know, even if they were to win the treble again, we wouldn't be 
too shocked, too stunned, would we, Connor? I don't think so. Um, if they were to do that, um, and and having Kevin De Bruyne back, you know, I mean, we, we even said on a on a different show again, talking about what each team needed in January, and we both agreed that Kevin De Bruyne would be like a new signing for Man City when he came back. So just to get him back fit was was the biggest thing that they needed this January. And well, we've seen it against Newcastle. We saw it again when he made his comeback against Huddersfield Town in the FA Cup earlier this month as well. I think it took him about what ten minutes, not even that. To, uh, to to return to style, get an assist in that game off the bench. And as she said there at the weekend, gets a goal, gets an assist, turns the game in Manchester City's favour. And that is going to be a huge, huge positive for them in the title race. And potentially having him back and keeping him fit the rest of the season could be what wins it for Manchester City. Yeah, two weeks off as well for Man City coming up. And then an FA Cup game before playing Burnley, I think on deadline day or the 31st of January I'm not sure when exactly deadline day falls so plenty of time to get Kevin De Bruyne up to speed and Erlen Haaland who you would expect to be fit by them but just a quick word on Newcastle that's eight defeats in the last 10 in all competitions four straight in the Premier League is a cause for concern it's in James's Park or is this maybe just the first major blip of the Eddie Howe reign well, it's, you know, today is January 15th for recording this Monday morning and then it's January 15th. So we are halfway through the transfer window at this point. And going into the January transfer window, everyone was talking about Newcastle and saying they just need to get to January, get a few more bodies in and they'll be fine. We've got to the 15th. There's been no one there. There's been no additions, nothing. Why? <laughs> Look, I know, you know, teams kind of obviously in this day and age have to, to balance the books with FFP and everything else. And we're, you know, recording this on the Monday morning. Uh, following the Sunday night full of reports that, that Everton and Nottingham Forest are the latest who may be, have breached FFP rules. Of course, that is still something that's at the forefront of clubs' minds that they have to spend within their means. They cannot afford to go over it. Um, so, of course, Newcastle will be trying to make sure that the deals that they can do are you know within those guidelines and those boundaries of FFP and everything else. But if it was so glaringly obvious, any well-run club, you know, the news, the noise from the outside. Um, as Newcastle were going on this difficult run November, December, where their squad has been decimated by injuries. The noise from the outside was they're waiting to get to January, they'll add a few more bodies in, and then maybe from there they can kick on. But as I said, this is January the 15th that we're recording the show on, and they've still not added anyone. And that squad is still as as paper thin as it was last month. No, Not many players have returned yet from the injuries that they've had. It just seems strange from the outside. And I think that's the issue here as well is that, you know, they're having to do it with the same players week in, week out, who might be out of form, might be tired, might be exhausted because they're having to play so much and they don't have the options to be able to replace them. Um, so it's it's a struggle for them from that point of view. Um, and it's just surprising that they've just not been able to, to bring anyone in really so far, that they haven't brought anyone in so far. Yeah, I think they did some press in the week. Darren Eels at Newcastle saying that they have to sell a big player at some point. Eddie Howe's kind of echoed that in the week. So you do wonder if they are concerned about FFP after posting a £73 million loss in the last account. So concerning, I suppose, for Newcastle. Just shows it'll be the richest club in the world, but still, those regulations will get you in the end. Manchester United, a draw with Spurs. Uh, Me watching this yesterday, I thought, Spurs pretty unlucky to have not won the game, really. I thought they were the better side. I looked at the stats. Man United only had two shots on target. Um, underwhelming again from their perspective. It just 
feels very much like a team without identity. And you look at Spurs and all the issues that they have, but Spurs have a very clear identity. And you just look at Ange Postacoglu and Eric Ten Hag and Ange fills us with warmth and Eric Ten Hag fills us with the opposite. Um, what was your view though on the game yesterday? You feel unlucky for Spurs or do you think a draw was probably fair? Speaking with your Spurs cap on and, and, and for any fan, I think this season, such has been Man United struggles at home. Um, that you kind of feel that if you don't come away from uh, Old Trafford with three points, you, you kind of feel like it's a missed opportunity. Um, but of course, you know, <laughs> it's regularly said that Tottenham are the best tonic for any side, any player that's struggling. Uh, and of course, that rang true yesterday. Marcus Rashford, we all told Peter Drury in his commentary as well, mentioning the fact that Rashford hadn't scored in the Premier League at Old Trafford so far. Uh, leading into the game against Spurs. And, well, of course, you always knew then that Marcus Rashford was going to score, such as, you know, Tottenham being the best tonic, the best bit of medicine for anyone. If you're going through a bad period, go and play Tottenham, you'll be fine. So Marcus Rashford has now got his goal, Dr. Tottenham, isn't he? That's what it's known as. Um, frustrating, I think, uh, because it the opportunity was there. Um, and if I don't think, you know, look, I may flip-flop between it. I may have jokingly said earlier on in the season on this podcast, and I will say it was a joke now. It might have been serious at the time. It's a joke now um, about Spurs being in the title one. But if they were serious about being in the title one, you have to win at Man United this season because I think, you know, the other teams that they'll be or looking, pushing near the top will also be looking at that game at Old Trafford and thinking this is a game that we have to win if we want to, you know, to, to be in the title hunt. So for Spurs, it's disappointing. Um, but in that top four battle, uh, and I think they're probably at the minute, they're probably duking it out with Aston Villa for that last spot in the top four at this stage. Um, at least it's only, at least it's one more point that Aston Villa got from their, uh, their their trip to Old Trafford as well. So kind of when you start matching it up, um, you know, at least we've got more from that trip to Old Trafford than, uh, than Aston Villa did. Um, yeah, disappointing. You kind of think had players in certain positions been available, you know, I'm not even talking about James Madison, even if we had someone like the Chelsea, for example, um, to be maybe more of a bit of creative spark in, in that midfield in that final third because playing players like Skip, Benton, Kerr and Hurryberg, they're all happier operating a little bit deeper and there wasn't one to kind of press that line. Obviously, Dejan Kulisevsky missing out, kind of missing a, a real kind of out and out number 10 uh, and attacking number 10 um, was maybe the kind of one big disappointment with Spurs because they weren't able to perhaps capitalise on it at those points. Timo Werner, I thought, had a okay debut um you know obviously grabbing an assist inside your first 80 minutes doing more than Anthony's managed in the whole campaign was was a great start for him and he'll take great confidence from it but there was times as well where you saw him get into positions and and there was one I think in the first half where you see him cutting on his right hand side cutting from the left onto his right foot and you're kind of thinking oh is he going to curl this into the top corner I think he had Rose Ed with it instead just really got underneath it and, and kind of found it and you're like Timo, did you have to do that today, lad? You know, all the other opposition fans are just going to be kind of looking at that with glee and thinking, oh, he's back. He's back. He's definitely back. Um, but the assist will definitely give him a lot of, of confidence going forward as well. Um, and yeah, but I think frustration that Spurs couldn't get the win, I think will be the override in the motion for them because it will feel like a, a missed opportunity. There's not many times that you get to go to Old Trafford and kind of think we should be favourites here, we should be winning this game. Uh, and, and, and that's the mood around there at the minute. I think this season is that it's a game that the teams will feel that they can win and should win as Spurs will be upset that they didn't. Man United though, eight points from fourth, um, having played a game more than some of the teams above them as well. Does it feel like the top four is too far away? I mean, that means that they've got to win three more games from now at the end of the season than the teams above them. And that just feels like such an ask with 17 games to play. But they don't have European football to focus on. 
they're still in the FA Cup, of course, and they might want to give that a real kind of push. But what is it? It's the FA Cup and the Premier League. Of course, there is still that. That is the same uh, situation that Tottenham find themselves in as well, is that there is nothing else to worry about. It is the Premier League. It is the FA Cup. And for Aston Villa, they have that kind of, they have the awkward one, I think, Aston Villa here, in terms of <clears throat> do they try to privatise the Europa Conference League over the Premier League? Because it, it's different. If they're in the Europa League, you know, it's kind of win-win. If we go all the way in the Europa League, we get to the Champions League anyway. And if we focus on that, then hopefully that comes off. But if they go that deep in the Conference League, um, then it might only be enough to get them into the Europa League next year. Now, of course, if they end up finishing fifth, there's that weird scenario where if they win the Europa Conference League, it might give the UK enough coefficient points for that fifth place to then come back towards the Premier League and Villa might end up in the Champions League that way. So going deep in the Europa League might still serve them well. We don't know. Um, we'll have to get the mathematicians out for that one come come towards the end of the season if it, if it does end up being that. Imagine they're winning the Conference League and you know then that will fire you into the Champions League instead of the Europa League because of the uh, opening up the fifth spot in the Premier League. But that's it as well. Who are they challenging? What are they challenging for? Is it the top four? Is it the top five? Top five yeah, kind of looks a little bit easier perhaps maybe for Man United. They still have to do exactly what you said there and kind of try to um, win more games. But when you go top four, it seems a little bit further away. When you go top five, it's a little bit different. Um, so it's an interesting one to watch and it might be interesting because there might be some Man United fans cheering on Arsenal and Manchester City as they go deeper into the Champions League in the hope that that again could help open up that fifth spot in the Premier League which might be a little bit more attainable for them than perhaps the top four is. From a, a neutral perspective, I know you're a Spurs fan, but from my perspective, there's no way watching that game yesterday that I could see Manchester United winning more games from now at the end of the season than Spurs. I mean, clip that one up there, but you know, in the future when they do, but I just don't see uh, Man United being able to, to crack into the top five, never mind the top four. Uh, Chelsea, though, things are really starting to click a little bit under Pochettino. Obviously, he had a big blip in midweek against Middlesbrough where they lost, but they, that's only half time. They can still turn that one round. But a, a third straight win in the Premier League. Um, are things looking up three points from sixth? You know, that that's the first time in a long time Chelsea have been in that area of the table. Form-wise, yeah, but I don't think anyone who watched that game on Saturday would be have, have been overly impressed by Chelsea's performance. Um, slow, lethargic, struggled to find a rhythm to, to break Fulham down, the only goal coming from a penalty. Um, you know, I think we're getting towards the stage now where we all think that Cole Palmer's name is spelt uh, with a open brackets P, close brackets at the end of it, such as how often that appears on the score sheet. Uh, the old joke that we used to say about, what was it, um, Roberto Saldano at Spurs, wasn't it? He, he only used to score penalties as well, such as the uh, such as his prolificness from, from 12 yards. But I I don't know with Chelsea. I still don't know. I still can't see it. Uh, look, the, the thing is, is that, yeah, you're right. They're gathering form and gathering some momentum at this right stage, this right time. But the issue is, and it, and it goes back to, you know, kind of something that you were saying about Spurs earlier, that Spurs have an identity, they have a way of playing, you know what Spurs you're going to get. And by and large, you also know when they're all fit and ready, what starting 11 you're going to get from Tottenham. With Chelsea, I still don't think we know what their best starting 11 is. We don't know who will be starting in what positions week in, week out. We don't know who they favour. You don't know who's going to be the partnerships in midfield. And, and those kind of worries and questions will then kind of lead you to think, well, if we don't know that, then how do we know what performance we're going to get? And if you don't know what performance you're going to get, 
how do you know what result you're going to get? So from that, I think Chelsea still have a lot of work to do. Um, but their tails will be up and the confidence will be high in the camp because, as you said there, the results are starting to come. And, you know, the mental side in modern football is probably just as as important as the technical side, the actual ability that you've got. Um, and it probably adds 10% when you're more confident, when you're happier and when you're enjoying it, um, probably adds a, a 10% to your ability. Uh, and so for in the minute for Chelsea, they're happy, they're enjoying their football. So it will help them uh, a little bit. But I still think a lot of work to do and, and, a, and a big game coming up against Middlesbrough to turn that around in the Carabao Cup in a, uh, this time next week, really, isn't it? Yeah, for the second legs, um, because they'll be wanting to get to that final at Wembley and they'll be wanting to win a trophy this season because, again, of the confidence that, that will give them going forward. Yeah, one last thing on Chelsea. I was just thinking about, because we're doing transfers, but... You know, Mason Mount goes to Manchester United in the summer and Cole Palmer goes to Chelsea and similar sort of transfer fees. Both players play similar positions. But it looks right now like a, a masterstroke from Chelsea that they were able to essentially swap those two players because Mason Mount struggled at Man United. He's been injured. He, he just hasn't settled seemingly in there. Whereas Cole Palmer, yes, he's scoring a lot of penalties, but he, he's still scoring goals. And I think when you watch Chelsea, he is the bright spot of their team. You just look at them two deals and think how much of an upgrade Chelsea seemingly have got. And actually, I think they might have even made a little bit of a profit on them deals. Of course, you know, the, the tough thing for Mason Mount is, and I'm not his biggest fan before we go into it, um, you know, I, I think the issue with Mason Mount is that you can't nail down what position he is. Is he a winger? No, because he's too slow. Is he a number 10? I don't think he's clever enough upstairs for that. Is he, is he a central midfielder? I don't think he's strong enough at this stage. Of the three, the one that's probably easiest to change is, is being into a central midfielder. Um, that hasn't helped. The injuries haven't helped um, as well. When you look at that Man United squad that he's trying to, to come into, whose position would he take in that team? You know, the, the one that he probably wants is Bruno Fernandes' slot. You're never going to dislodge the captain from that squad. So then where else does he fit in? And they did try him on the wing and it doesn't really work for him. So it's not it's not been the easiest to start to him. Um and and I think for him he just needs to to he needs to know himself what position is best for him, what position he wants to play. Almost do an Eric Dyer and say to the, to the manager, This is where I want to play, this is what I want to be, I want to be this player, play me here. Um and maybe that's something that he needs to do because then he can hone that craft, whereas where he's still trying to kind of add all these different things. Um, to, to his game, it, it's probably detrimental to it. Cole Palmer, confidence of youth uh, coming to Manchester, coming to from Manchester City. So it's Chelsea in the summer, having uh, having been part of that England side that won the uh, under twenty one European Championships, would have been confident. Um, the, the discussions that he had with Man City uh, before he moved were all about you know he was trying to get more game time, wanted more uh, assertions on game time and uh, assurances around it, and he was basically told that he wouldn't be getting those assurances. So he wanted to move in, in search of game time and minutes. And that kind of probably gave him, you know, something to to prove. You know, Mason Mount, I think, you know, why did he leave Chelsea? Because he didn't feel that he was getting fair value on his contract. Um, and so, you know, he's, that's the reason why he's moved to Manchester United. Um, and you think that there maybe he does still have a point to prove and want to show, look, this is what you should have been paying me because I'm worth it. He hasn't been able to do it at the minute. But I think Cole Palmer's driving force is a little bit different when it's a show Man City you should have been giving me the minutes boys because I'm ready on at this level. And I think that's a bit more of a driving factor than money ever is or should it ever be. Um, so with regards to that, I think that that probably helps him as well and, and helps him perform better. But also we know exactly what Cole Palmer is. He's, he is that winger, that inside for when he can play that role well. Um, 
you know, he, he when they played him through the middle as a false nine in, in midweek against Middlesbrough, it didn't work out for him. Um, and maybe that will show them that they should never try that, that kind of idea again. Because, of course, they went back to Armando Borussia um, at the weekend and allowed Palmer to go and play in his more natural position, a position where he can affect the game more and be more involved. Um, he's playing with the confidence of youth. He's playing with the confidence of a man who won a European under-21 championship in the summer, playing with the confidence of a man who's scoring goals regularly. Um, but the question is now, of course, where he goes through a bad patch of form. We're seeing that for Mason Mount at Man United. Bad patch of form, can't snap out the funk. And when Cole Palmer gets there as well, how long does it take for him to snap out of that bad run of form? Because we've just seen a good run of form at the minute and he's doing well for Chelsea. But it's, it's where that bad run of form kind of comes and, and when it comes and how he gets himself out of it and how long it takes him to get out of it as well. That's the uh, the, the crucial thing. Transfer news now. Um, two bits from Liverpool. It sounds like Liverpool are wanting to raid the northeast. Judging by these two stories, we'll start with Liverpool targeting Anthony Patterson from Sunderland. Young goalkeeper has played. I think he's played over a hundred games for Sunderland. He's certainly played a lot of games over the last two and a half seasons. Um, presumably coming in to be a backup option. I can't imagine him dislodging Allison. But what do you make of that story? Are you surprised that Liverpool are targeting a backup? Yeah, because they've got a, a good backup in Quivin Kelleher. Now, of course, the, the thing here would be, would Liverpool make more money by selling Kelleher and bringing in Patterson? Is there an opportunity to make a bit of profit there? Which then, you know, again, as we've already discussed this morning with FFP now, would it allow them a bit more flexibility on other transfer targets? Think they can go and perhaps put in a bit more for, for other players as well um, and, and give them a bit more flexibility there. So, of course, there is that. But it does seem strange that you're swapping one for one, basically. Um, you know, Kravin Kelleher is classed as a homegrown player for Liverpool, came from their academy. And uh, yeah, he's, uh, as I said there, he's classed as a homegrown player. It's not like you're swapping out your backup keeper for a homegrown player to, to boost that quota for you. Liverpool would be swapping one homegrown player in Kelleher for Sunderland's homegrown player in Patterson. So it, it doesn't, it's a strange one. Nothing, any, any kind of trying logic that I'm trying to apply to this transfer, this rumour, doesn't seem to make sense. But kind of your, you know, in terms of Patterson himself, you see him quite regularly at Sunderland, uh, being a Sunderland fan yourself. Is he is he of the quality that Liverpool should be looking at? Is he an upgrade on, on Kelleher potentially? Uh, you know, as, as you say there, he's, he's likely going to, to Liverpool to be a backup. Maybe he might even be a backup to a backup. Maybe they won't sell Kelleher and he's coming in to replace uh, Adrian um, when, he, when his time at Liverpool's coming up. But, if he was to be, you know, kind of brought in to replace Kelleher to allow Liverpool to sell Kelleher, is he is he is he of that quality? Could he replace Kelleher as Liverpool's backup, as Liverpool's cup keeper as well? He probably could, but I think that my issue with this move on Liverpool's side is that Patterson's knock. The one thing I would say that he doesn't have going for him is the fact that his feet aren't great. You know, he's not a good distributor, and you compare it to Allison, who I think. Logically, Patterson needs to be competing with Allison, so therefore you want them to have similar attributes. I just don't know if Patterson would have that level of football and skill. Look, Sunderland do play out from the back, but there's a couple of times this season where Patterson's been caught, you know, hitting bad passes. You know, the amount of times he kicks the ball out of play because he's overhit a ball. I, I just don't feel like he's a logical replacement there. And then from Patterson's side, the Liverpool move would obviously give him financial security. I don't imagine he's on massive money at Sunderland. He has signed a new contract there, but he, Sunderland have a, a wage cap, so he's not going to be on more than £15,000 a week 
he goes to Liverpool, he probably doubles, triples that. I understand it from that perspective, but at his age, he's playing every week in the championship. He has been linked with Premier League moves last summer. Wolves were interested in him. I think Leicester would have signed him had they not been relegated. Um, so that has been interested from the, the top level. The other thing is, I don't know, some are not, not really in a position where they need to sell players. You know, they sold Ross Stewart in the summer. Jack Clark, we've talked about, it's expected he'll go next summer. So Patterson isn't a player that I think they have a need to sell right now. So I think it'll be hard to for Liverpool to come in and maybe take them for sort of five, eight million pounds. I think Sunderland are probably looking for 12, 15 million pounds because they don't have to sell. So <clears throat> I, I don't, I don't see this transfer happening in January. I think I could see it happening in the summer, but I don't see it happening now, but we'll switch though. Liverpool also interested in a Northeast player. This one a bit more notable, Bruno Gamares from Newcastle. Um, a report saying he's going to be available for £32 million per season for three years. Very strange to see a transfer talked about in this way because I think most teams play in instalments, but that, that's the, the new story. Newcastle, we've talked about them already here, but they're reportedly open to selling players because of issues with FFP, profit and sustainability rules. Uh, Bruno, I think, has a release clause in his contract of £98 million, although, yeah, that, that's 96, but that's by the by. But yeah, Bruno apparently has a release clause in his contract. Um, it feels like a strange one to happen in January, I must admit, but do you think there's any legs to this story? Well, you look at Liverpool's midfield and you kind of try and work out where he would fit in. Like He's a great, great player, but Liverpool didn't splash out big money on Gravenberg, on Shaboshlai and on McAllister last summer just to go and sign a fourth midfielder in January. And then not, not you know, I've not even mentioned Mataro Endo in that, in that list as well. They didn't spend as big on him, but he's still an important part of this Liverpool midfield. So it would seem strange um, for, for Liverpool to move forward. And that's not to say that Bruno is a, a, a cracking player and a cracking talent. Um, and as you say there, you know, Newcastle briefing last week that they are maybe having to sell one of those big players. And, and I think we said about that squad last week as well. We were talking about that Newcastle team and there's not, you know, players that will attract big fees. There's not maybe many in that squad. You know, you may be looking at maybe uh, Isaac and Sven Botman eventually and, and Bruno Gimaraes is, is probably those three players that would attract the biggest fees. So if Newcastle are, you know, like any you know, if they want to do it in the most cost-effective manner to bring in the money, you'd, you'd sell one of those rather than having to sell two or three players. Um, as tough as it is, you know, to sacrifice one of your bigger players, then that might kind of allow you more scope elsewhere to have a, a bigger squad, and especially with Newcastle's issues. <laughs> the last thing that they need to do is to have to sell two or three players rather than one when they've already got such a, a thin squad. Um, so, you know, Gimaraes would bring in, um, you know, a big fee for Newcastle, but it would seem odd for Liverpool to splash out again, big having you know splash out big in the summer on, on uh, three midfielders and, and and getting a fourth one in as well in in Mataro Endo, um, and you look at the other players in that Liverpool squad as well. You know, I'm saying there about the transfers that they brought in, but Curtis Jones has really really stepped up for Liverpool this season, become such a a key figure for them in midfield as well. Um, they kind of you know you're looking at and you've got five really good options in midfield already, do you need to spend that big money on a, on a sick front? And again, with FFP, could that money then be better spent elsewhere, potentially? Um, you know, you'd understand why Liverpool are interested in, in Bruno because he's a, a, a highly, highly talented player, but then you kind of look at their midfield already and you go, you've got enough there, lads. Maybe, you know, if you are going to spend big and you still have money to spend big somewhere, then, then you look at other areas in the pitch rather than the midfield because I think you're well stocked there already. 
Chelsea now. Um, this is a, a one out of left field. They're ready to pay the release clause for, and I apologize if I get this wrong, but Stavio Willian, 16-year-old, playing for Palmeiras in, in Brazil. 60 million euro release clause. It just seems like a very large outlet. You don't see that sort of money spent on 16-year-olds um, ever. Really, I, I think it must. It would be a record, surely. Um, it just seems like a bit of a mind-boggling transfer, especially with FFP and all the money that Chelsea have spent previously to spend money on a player that apparently won't leave Brazil until he's eighteen. So that's you spend it in, in two years' time, you're going to get the the benefits of it. It just feels like a non-transfer story, but yet here we are reporting on it. It was on the the Mirror Transfer blog this morning. Um, seems like a, a strange one. I will uh, refer you to the case of a wonderfully talented footballer that we're about to see uh, for Real Madrid in the future called Endrick, who also went for 60 million euros in a fee that could rise to about 72 million euros, I think, in the end for Endrick. Um, so maybe Chelsea are kind of have looked at Mr. Val Willian and kind of thought, but well, he's the next one, he's the next cab off the rank and we'll go in there and we'll go, you know, the investment isn't, it looks bad. I, I know what you mean. You're kind of going untried, untested, 16-year-old kid and we're going to splash out money on him. But if you're convinced that this kid is going to be the next, um, you know, superstar in world football, 60 million now is is a drop in the ocean, um, you know, because you'll have him for 10, 15 years, hopefully. And, you know, the amount of trophies that he wins, he probably pays, you know, not to mention uh, in terms of shirt sales and everything else that he might bring in if he is an absolute global superstar of the game. He'll probably bring and pay off his transfer fee in uh, prize money from the competitions that will help you win alone in, in terms of that. Um, it is a risk, it is a gamble. Um, you know, we've seen plenty of, of young, talented superstars come across uh, over the years for varying fees. You know, young, talented teenagers, sorry, not superstars, but young, talented teenagers come across from Brazil. Um, and such are the regulations in Brazil, she said there, about the fact that they're only allowed to leave um, to, to join another club uh, after the age of 18. Um you know, at least they can grow and you kind of hope that they, they get those opportunities and, and whatnot. And, you know, Endrick has had that at Palmeiras. So it'll be interesting to see if Estevão William gets those opportunities as well. If he was to move to Chelsea, still getting played in the first team, is he that good enough? Would the team still want him uh, to be playing in the first team, even though they know that he's not going to be there eventually? Um, I know what you mean, uh, as I said at the top there. I know what you mean, that you kind of go 60 million on a 16-year-old team quite a lot. But if you are convinced that this, this kid is going to be the next global superstar then in this day and age if you're not snapping him up someone else will so you might as well jump when you get the chance and and hopefully he becomes that brilliant player that you think he will be yeah high risk high reward I suppose Uh, Endrick also flashes me to Football manager, he's just been one of them wonder kids on Football Manager the last sort of season or two. Um, excited to see him in Europe. But speaking of Real Madrid, uh, nice segue here. Killing Mbappe, the saga, the transfer saga that's probably going to be on this podcast for the next six months. You know what's going to happen? He's heading out of contract. But reports this morning say that Real Madrid are are more interested in Victor Osimhen from Napoli, and that's their number one target this summer. Now. Call me a cynic, but I think this is maybe a bit of Real Madrid. Um, uh, I don't know, feeding a story to the press just to try and maybe lower a price or suggest to Mbappe that, you know, 
you're not just the number one flirting with another girl at the bar just to get the attention of someone else. That was that's what it kind of feels like to me. Took the words exactly out of my mouth there. I was going to liken it to when we were teenagers, immature teenagers, and you're you know you're kind of uh, trying to make the girl that you're interested in jealous, or or the girl you know is trying to make the boy jealous and, and talking to other parties and saying no no that I'm interested in with him. And I think we've all seen it. You know, as I said, they're teenagers going through school. We've all played those games or, or had those games played against us. Um, but then I was thinking about it more logically and kind of thinking, well, who would be better suited to this current Real Madrid side? And that's not to say Kylian Mbappe is a terrible player, but they have two very similar players to Mbappe, I think, already in Vinicius Junior, in Rodrigo. You know, he, I mean, I'm not saying that he wouldn't play well with them. Like, I'm sure that they would pick, pick up and drop off and, you know, in the positions that would be able to create, you know, it would be like having three false nines and who knows who's marking and the space that they'd be able to get into. It'd be unreal. But you look at the success that Hossler is having at the minute as that kind of more, um, you know, traditional number nine. This is the same Hossler who, you know, when he was in the Premier League, he played for Stoke and he couldn't do it on the cold Tuesday night in Stoke, as, as, the, uh, as the old adage goes. Uh, and he struggled at Newcastle as well. So, you know, when he was in the Premier League, would have been surprised if he said, oh, yeah, this bloke's going to lead the line for Real Madrid. But he is enjoying success in that team at the minute because of the opportunities that are being created for him by your likes of Vinicius Jr., by your likes of Rodrigo. And you kind of look at Victor Osman and you go, he's more like Hossolu. Of, of the two, out of him and Mbappe, he's more the Hossolu mould. Um, of course, he you know, he's, he still can create and he's still got great pace and can still run at defences as well. But it feels like Osman is more of that traditional number nine that seems to be working well for Real Madrid at the minute, especially with Jude Bellingham in that 10 role as well. You know, so you kind of look at it and you go, oh, well, I'd rather have Mbappe, he's cheaper, he's better, he's this, he's that. But actually, then you kind of start to look at it a little bit more and you kind of think, well, now maybe awesome and then maybe his attributes might slot into this team better and Mbappe might disrupt it a little bit more. Um, that being said, I still fully expect Kylian Mbappe to be pulling on the, uh, the the famous white shirt of Real Madrid next season. And that, as you said there, this is a bit of... Gamesmanship, bit of sportsmanship, bit of Brunkmanship, perhaps. Um, by, by, as you said there, maybe feeding these uh, rumours, these suggestions. Ah, oh, Killian, we're, we're looking at someone else now, mate. We're not interested to kind of, when it comes to negotiation, because you don't want to show your full hand, do you, before you go into those talks? You know, you don't want to say, we're desperate for you, come and join us. And then that price keeps going up and up in terms of the wages, doesn't it? You know, oh, okay, here's an extra 10, here's an extra 10. Whereas if you say, no, we're looking at someone else, then it kind of allows you a little bit more bargaining in that, in that kind of aspect as well. Um, but yeah, I as much as I think Osimhen, I can see why, I can understand why, and I think he's close to to what the role that Hossolu is currently filling for Aldred. Uh, I still think we're more likely to see Kylian Mbappe in the white shirt next season than uh, than Victor Osimhen. Do I think with Mbappe in Real Madrid, it's just it's logical because Real Madrid sang these type of players. Like I know that next this coming summer when Real Madrid do inevitably sign Kylian Mbappe. You're going to see them shirts everywhere. You go on holiday and everyone will be wearing Mbappe Real Madrid shirts. I mean, they're going to make so much money off it. And it just, I know we're not in the Galactical era anymore, but it feels like Real Madrid are, are beginning to build the superstar team. And it it would just feel strange to me if they allowed Kylian Mbappe to slip through there. Even though I agree with a lot of the points that you're saying about Osterman being a, a better fit. I do agree, you know, Mbappe isn't at his best when he's going straight through the middle. He's better coming off, you know, one of the wings. I do understand that logic, and I do actually think that if you were taking the names out of it, the the attributes that Osman has over Mbappe probably would suit Real Madrid more. But it just feels so much that this transfer 
makes so much sense for Real Madrid and Mbappe, just in terms of marketing of the club, in terms of the size of the name, just in terms of the things off the pitch, that it would be weird if this deal didn't happen and they allowed him to go to Liverpool, say, which seems to be Mbappe flirting with the other girl at the bar to Real Madrid flirting with a different girl. But that, that marketing point there and the fact that you're mentioning Liverpool brings up the other interesting aspect in this, this point in this, is that Kylian Mbappe at the minute is playing for PSG, who are sponsored through uh, the Jordan brand, uh, which is a subsidiary of Nike, um, sponsored by Nike, playing for France, sponsored by Nike. He wears Nike boots, I think. I'll tell you what, if I've got this badly wrong, this is going to look hilarious now. But as far as I'm aware, Kylian Mbappe is still sponsored by Nike which is the reason why Liverpool are perhaps being linked to that other club. Um, you know, the only other team that you look at and you kind of go, maybe Barcelona could be in for, for Kylian Mbappe um, as well. And it's it's that Marcus employee. Might be desperate for him to stay within their realm of influence. Playing for one of the teams, you know, every single thing about Kylian Mbappe, Nike shoes, Nike club, Nike national team, they'd love that. They'd really, really love that. And if he was to go off to Real Madrid and Adidas's feather in the cap, well, they wouldn't be best pleased, would they? You know, and it wouldn't look right and it wouldn't feel right and everything else that comes with it. Um, you know, it it's from that point of view as well. It's not just the clubs, I think, that, that you know, would be having words as well. I think it's the, the sponsors as well will be looking uh, to make sure that they kind of keep the players that they've got within that realm of influence. You know, because it always did seem strange. You know, you kind of go back to, to Messi and Ronaldo. It did always feel a little bit strange that Ronaldo was the Nike player playing in the Adidas team and Messi was the Adidas player playing in the Nike team for, you know, obviously Ram Madrid sponsored by Adidas and Barcelona sponsored by Nike. It did always seem a little bit weird and a little bit strange, but it was all right because when they went back to their national teams, Ronaldo was playing for Nike sponsored Portugal and Messi was playing for Adidas sponsored Argentina. So it kind of sorted itself out there, but it did always seem strange that, you know, the kind of the two big poster boys for the two big sponsors in, in football were, were, weren't at the right kind of club teams, at least from uh, who was making the gigs for them. So, you know, from that aspect as well, from the marketing side of things, um, Adidas would love to snatch him from under the noses of Nike and, and have him in Adidas shirts because of the money that they provide. And Nike would just love to keep Kylian Mbappe as Project Nike, nothing else, no other, you know, no other sponsors involved at all. He wears Nike boots, plays for Nike club, plays for Nike national team. They would, they would love to try and keep that as much as possible. Yeah, I kind of hope Mbappe does that LeBron James style, the decision. I don't know if you remember that at the time where he was deciding where he was going to go in free agency and he did it on television. That would be quite interesting. Anyway, Ned, we are out of time uh, today. Thanks for joining me. Always fun on a Monday morning to catch up about all the Premier League and transfer news. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll catch you later in the week.